Hi everyone, this is John Snyder for The Walk. And how has your week been going so far? Well, I hope. It's been a year since we locked down here in Munich. I remember that weekend well. My family was away in Basel, Switzerland, when a word started spreading about a potential border shutdown since the epidemic had escalated in Europe. The German government was considering closing its borders to try to stem the rapid transmittal of the virus. It didn't seem like something like that could really happen, but from consideration to action, it took only a few hours. So they rushed over to the train station. They were considering staying an extra day, but the Deutsche Bahn agent told them not to wait. So they bought tickets and rushed back to their apartment to pack up and leave. The hard lockdown started that Monday, so they left just in time. I still thank God for bringing them home safely that day. My question of the week, maybe it'll be our question of the month, is this. What have been the highlights of the lockdown for you? The good and out of the bad. For me, one of the highlights has been hosting guests and hearing inspiring stories of their faith journeys. Today, we welcome our guest, Matt Ferris. Matt is heavily involved in ministry, teaching at the middle school and high school level, and leading Bible study in his local church. He was a four-time fellow of the Aspen Music Festival, beginning his professional career in music, playing double bass in a symphony orchestra. It was there that he came into contact with a Christian stand partner who led him to faith in Jesus. For the last 30 years, he's worked in the field of information technology. Matt has written three books, including Losing Religion, Finding Jesus, Moving Beyond Cultural Christianity. I was actually raised in um, the Lutheran Church, um, and as you may know, uh, at least in the States, um, in the 1970s and such, the Lutheran Church went through various um, hive-offs and things like that. Yeah. So we started out in the Missouri Synod and then ended up in a in a small little synod called the English Synod. I don't think that oh. exists anymore. Oh, I haven't heard of that. And then, uh, of course, everything came to the LC, ELCA, I think. Right. But uh, the church we were in was, um, I would say, not not gospel preaching. I mean, I uh, two things I was fairly sure about growing up was that uh, God existed, and secondly, that He was not happy with me. And <laughs> I knew that I knew that my sin was the reason for that second point, and so. Um, I always grew up believing that God existed, but, um, somewhere, I think it was about my junior year in college, I decided to start reading the Bible. Uh, I began writing out actually the book of Romans in longhand just to try to get that into, uh, my brain. Yeah. And I can distinctly remember, you know, going through some of those, uh, some of Paul's logic and just not following at all right not not getting it yeah my my degree is actually in music uh performance double bass and so i started out my career as a as a musician playing in a symphony orchestra i uh, got a job in the tulsa philharmonic just after graduation in a professional orchestra you you get a seat and that seat is your seat you don't move around and so <laughs> as it happened um my stand partner uh in the orchestra was a believer and he began inviting me to Bible studies at the local church. And it was that fall, um, that would have been late 1985, uh, that I really started to understand the gospel, my guilt and, and faith in Christ as 
as the way uh, of a relationship with God. Uh-huh. And that local church was very, very keen on um, the priesthood of all believers, that everyone has equal access uh, to God and that everyone should uh, engage with the scriptures intentionally, deeply, purposefully. So that, um, and I had a, I had someone who discipled me in those early years uh, that really, I would say, put good books in my hand and, and told me, you know, read this not that. And so that I look back on as really key and informative. Was that your stand partner who did that as your mentor? Uh, no, that, that was, I mean, he certainly had a hand in that, but that was someone else, um, uh, uh, an elder at that local church. Did you have a, what you might call a Luther experience? You mentioned you believed in the existence of God and then he wasn't happy with you. Uh, right. And you know, Luther's story, how he yeah, that's about all he knew, and and he wasn't happy with God either. Sure, uh, and he felt like he could never please God. Did anything like that in your experience? Um, perhaps so. I mean, I I think it was it was kind of a Luther moment when I had operated under the paradigm that what I need to do here is to stop sinning, and that that will mean God is pleased with me. But coming to the point finally of realizing that that's simply not possible to to stop sinning was kind of a Luther moment, and and you know perhaps ironically I was uh, I was at the Aspen Music Festival in Aspen, Colorado, and there was a tiny little Lutheran church there. Um, couldn't have held more than forty people at capacity, but I I remember a sermon that, that pastor preached uh, one week essentially saying there's no way to outsin the mercy of God and that that was just a, a very uh, freeing and watershed um, sermon for me at that point. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, yeah. So we got a, a good dose of grace, sounds like. Yes, yes. Uh, now, you, you mentioned music a couple times in your, in your CV here. Right. Um, so was that your your main uh, work some years ago? It, it was actually. Um, I mean, where where you are in Germany, you know, every town of you know forty fifty thousand people, I think, has an opera house and, and an orchestra. At least they used to. Yeah. And over there, it's much more like a a civil servant job or a government job. Of course, it's an import in the West, but um, yeah, in the United States, that is. So yes. Uh, it was um, it was a job, barely a job for me, uh, because in you know if you're in an orchestra like the Chicago Symphony or the Los Angeles Philharmonic, I mean those are you know those are very well-paying jobs. But um, when you get further down the rung, um, the orchestras tend to be filled out with a core of full-time players and then part-time players as well. And so my first job, I was one of the full-time players. Um, I did that for seven years and then oh. made move uh, into uh, information technology. And so I've been working in IT for the past nearly 30 years, I guess. Okay. Well, I was going to ask that question down the road here, but let's talk about that now. So I've, I've done a, just a variety of things over the course of those years. I started out um, a, as a programmer and then um, moved into more project management 
and these days I'm doing more um, information security work. So it's been a variety of things. Uh, speaking of that topic, how would you describe the the direction that the electronic information industry is going? Anything interesting or anything that may be um, a problem for uh, culture or the church or anything like that? Oh, certainly. I think what has resonated with me, um, and this was really before the full advent of, of social media, um, you, you may know about the work of uh, Neil Postman, who I think died late 19, late 90s. Um, but Postman was kind of a prophet in what he predicted. Um, a couple of his really seminal works, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of mm-hmm. Television, yeah. which before Facebook or any social media kind of predicted a lot of what we've seen in the past several years. Um, and then his, his last book, I think, was called Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, I I manifest a a clear bias for reading in print and particularly reading my Bible in print. Um, and there are just all kinds of implications for, for believers in particular, um, in in terms of, um, attention drain, you know, when you have, uh, let's say 20, 25 tabs open in the browser that media and technology are enablers of distraction. And that's, that's not a unique, uh, sentiment of mine. Many, many people have, um, have noted that. Sure. Uh, but I think it's, it's incumbent on us to name that and to kind of work against it because it, it will happen inevitably if you, if you don't take active steps, uh, to battle it. Um, just one other article I'll mention, I think it was in National Affairs Magazine some months ago, uh, an article by Adam Garfinkel called The Erosion of Deep Literacy. Mm-hmm. And if people are interested in that, uh, if there's one one article only that you read, it, I would recommend that one. And it talks just about this phenomenon. And it has, I think, widespread implications for our ability to engage ideas and to think through things in, in ways that uh, you know, a couple of generations ago, it was far easier to do because these these tools of distraction were not competing for our attention yeah. as they are. So, yes, there are widespread implications. How would you evaluate the impact on uh, on young people? I think there's two strands that are that are concerning the widespread just sort of uh, self reflection that social media encourages, but it is not a self-reflection that is healthy. It is a, how am I compared to my peers? And so social media has encouraged young people in particular to present themselves online in a, in a facade, right? And it's not, of course, just young people that do that, but the dangers for younger people seem to be particularly acute because of just the importance of, of their peers and what their peers think of them. So there's, there's that whole aspect. And then there's also what I mentioned before, just the, the, uh, the ability to engage in deep reading and to, you know, ponder the printed page. Um, the loss of that I think has, has 
huge implications for for our culture and for the church going forward. I agree. I have a um, a friend who's a professor of psychiatry here in Germany, not in Munich, but near the city. And uh, he said that uh, whether you, there's a difference between learning by paper and pen and books, paper books, and on the screen. And he said that especially for young people, uh, it actually affects the brain development in such a way that what happens in the early stages will fix your brain permanently. Yes. And he talks about some of the dangers of the social media and uh, and some of the narcissism that you you may I think absolutely hinting at that. Um, it's it's quite scary even for adults. Um, I, in a recent interview, I talked to somebody else who was who was also involved in well, especially in artificial intelligence, and yes, he was worried about the impact right. that would have or the development of it on um, uh, surveillance <laughs> that sort of thing. You say you talk, you you teach in middle school and high school. We could use that as a related question. What are you seeing among that age level of students? The impact of of the whole computer, Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. everything else. What what stands out in your mind there? Well, just for on a purely uh, mechanical or practical matter. Uh, the, the classes that I'm involved with, we've had to go online, of sure. course, because of COVID. Yeah. And so for the past year or so, we've been meeting over Zoom. And uh, those of us who are teaching are, are nowhere near as fast mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of typing into the chat and such as the, as the students are. Um, they are they are digital natives, as I think yeah, yeah. has been I know. called. So there's that... Um, most of the kids, I think, in our classes are from Christian homes. And so, you know, we haven't perhaps seen as much of that deleterious peer pressure effects mm-hmm. uh, that you'd see just among the general population. But I, I think what that shows and what it highlights is that it's it's important for parents to to curate this stuff for their for their kids. And it, it is not, um, it is not innocuous, right? The, to, to go back to Neil Postman, this is one of the, the points um, he made in that first uh, book I mentioned, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that the medium, you know, shapes, shapes the, uh, the content, right? It's yeah, sure. not original with him. It's Marshall McCool and the medium is the message. Yeah, but, I remember that book. Yeah. So it's, it is incumbent on parents to at least know uh, about these things and, and not to assume that it's, it's wholly without um, effect on their kids. Do you think the parents are really aware of the extent of the impact? Probably many of them are not, yeah. right? Because they are, they are not uh, the digital natives. They didn't grow up with this. And right. so... It, it is, in a sense, a foreign country to them, yeah. and they have to uh, acclimate themselves to it. We talk also about um, scripture study. You obviously have a very strong interest in serious scripture study, of course, which I do too. Right. Uh, talk about that for a minute, if you would. Right. Yeah, I think that, that goes back to what I mentioned as my early 
early years as a Christian and the discipleship I received. Um, and you know, my my website is is called gentlemantheologian.com, and that's uh, the purposefully um, named because, as you may be familiar with the the idea of the gentleman farmer, is one who engages in farming but not not to make a living, right? It's it's um, I guess you'd say an avocation, yeah. but the, the the point behind that is that I think every Christian is a theologian, uh, whether they admit that or not. Oh, it sure. is the case, of course. And so the the question is, uh, what kind of theologian are we? Are we are we pursuing that uh, with purpose and and to study the scriptures and to study God as we should? And so. I think um, another thing that I talk about there is that the the distinction I think between clergy and laity that we've had for so long in the church has has not been helpful no. to this idea. Very very damaging. And so one of the things I say is you know Paul that word kleros clergy called he uses that several times in the New Testament and every time he does he uses it for all Christians at the beginning of Romans yeah. when he says, among whom you also are the called, right. the clergy of Jesus Christ. He's talking to all the Romans. And so it is, I think, we are in a position, particularly in the West, in the United States, where we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of tools and aids yeah. to study the Scripture in a way that previous generations simply did not have. And so uh, you may not be in seminary, but there's no reason you can't study like a seminarian. That's there's right. no reason you can't read the same books that seminarians are reading or that seminary professors are reading. Yeah. Um, if, if you are literate, you have the tools That's to, right. to, to pursue that. And so, you know, in, in Ephesians, Paul talks about the body building itself up. And I think that's a key is that, and this is nothing I say is to diminish the work of those who are doing pastoring and teaching vocationally, who are giving themselves full time to that. Um, those are, are needed uh, in the church. So I'm not at all saying that I don't value pastors. Uh, but what I am saying is that I think Many, many pastors would be thrilled if the people in their congregation said, can you recommend a book to me on, you know, fill in the blank, some theological topic. They, they yeah. would be, you know, overjoyed to have their people engaging yeah. in deep study of scripture. Yeah. So that's me. I, too. Yeah, as I'm saying that, you know, uh, it, it's open to all. We're all theologians and and. and the topic is worthy of our study. God is worthy of our commitment to that. The amazing thing is, too, isn't it, that um, in all of human history, we have more tools than anybody has ever had to become theologians, lay theologians, or any even a professional theologian. And yet, um, you're probably familiar with the work of George Barna, too, that only, yes. uh, I think he said 17% of evangelicals even have a biblical worldview. Right. Uh, that's kind of shocking. Yes. Discuss, um, I was interested in the, the books you mentioned here. 
Right. Talk for a minute about uh, losing religion, finding Jesus. That looked like a, looks like right. you're you're following the culture pretty well. Um, that book was really written as a result of, of um, a family member who wanted to read what I had written. And the previous book that I wrote before that, um, If One Uses It Lawfully, which which talks about the place of the Mosaic Law in the Christian life, mm-hmm. is a more is a more technical book. Um, and so I said, you know, here's a book <laughs> to read if you want to know. And really, Losing Religion, Finding Jesus talks about the phenomenon where a message of grace um, is very welcomed, I think, by most. And that if you, you know, to go back to Luther, if you preach to someone that there's no way of of working your way into God's favor, that it has to be all by grace, uh, that is generally uh, very accepted. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, I accept God is gracious. That's wonderful. Let's Let's move on. But the thing that Luther had and that um, those of his day had was a deep consciousness of sin mm-hmm. and that they they had offended God. Their sins had led to a broken relationship with God. And that is the thing that we don't have today. That's right. Um, and so the book is an attempt to sort of draw out those themes. I talk about the wrath of God in there as well as the love of God, and that if there's um, an imbalance today, which I believe there is, it is that the love of God is thought uh, to be the only attribute that God possesses, and that any displeasure or wrath over sin, the fact that our relationship, that as Paul says in Romans, that we were the enemies of God, Mm-hmm. when Christ died for us, that that is, um, you know, that that's not a healthy thing. That's passe, right? Exactly. That's, that's uh, the old days, which we don't live in anymore. Right. Um, in fact, uh, I, I can't remember exactly what Barna said about this, but I think he said that about three-fourths or maybe even more of people who call themselves born again uh, think that people are basically good. Mm-hmm. And they don't believe in original sin at all. I think maybe it was even higher than 75%. Um, and right. I, I see that everywhere. As a, as a pastor in the churches I've been in, um, the vast majority of Christians I know think that's absurd. Right. And and that was, yeah, and that's, you know, the, the overarching thing I wanted to convey in, in that book, Losing Religion, Finding Jesus, is the need for conversion. We yeah. need to be converted. We need to be born again. That's right. Uh, and I talked about that early on in the book, that the, the, the term, you know, for a variety of reasons through um, American culture in the, you know, beginning, I suppose, in the 80s and such, that um, the term born again has, uh, you know, you, it, it wasn't uncommon to find someone say, well, you're not one of those born again Christians, are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not realizing that, in fact, that is the only kind of Christian there is yeah, that's according right. yeah. to scripture and that those words were actually spoken by Jesus. So, um, I think what you, what you say is absolutely the case. You may be familiar with, you know, Christian Smith, who's a sociologist at Notre Dame 
I think he's the one who's credited with coining the term moralistic therapeutic deism. And that idea that God is um, essentially uninvolved in people's lives. If there's a crisis, we can call on him. Um, people are essentially good. And if they live good lives, then at the end of their lives, they are rewarded with heaven. Yeah. Um, and all of those things that, you know, have uh, become interwoven in our, uh, the, the culture has impinged on scripture to define how we regard God and how we regard our need. Yeah. Heaven is for those who deserve it, right? Right. In terms of what's happened in the last just 12 months, mm. uh, let alone what's happened in uh, the last 10, 20 years, uh, what do you see as the church is facing today? What's What are we moving toward in the next decade, would you guess? Mm. It's a tough one, I know. Yeah. You don't even have um, to answer it unless you feel like it, but uh, it's something well, I think I, about all day long. Yes. And, and I... I don't know how it is where you are, but I'm sure um, you've observed what's what's happened on this side of yeah, the Atlantic. Right. Yep. That um, there's been there's been great division among Christians. Um, most of that division is political, yeah. um, and I would say how how the church is dealing with with COVID with the pandemic. Um, has also caused divisions. Some of the reasons for that are also political at at their foundation. Yeah. But I think um, what we've seen in the past 12 months, I think, has uh, the seeds for this were were planted years ago. That's right. And a lot of it is now coming to bloom. Um, the idea that, that Christians somehow um, need to insist on our rights. Um, it's, and in so doing that we would not suffer, uh, I think is, is really not sustainable from scripture. Mm -hmm. If, if the church today begins to look more like the church of the first century and where there's open hostility toward the gospel and toward Christians, we should ask ourselves, is this a bad thing? Is this not? Could it not be a purifying thing? Yeah. And when I say that, I don't, I don't mean to say that all of what's happened is persecution, right? I think there's, there's plenty of things that have happened uh, in the United States with, with believers over the past month where some are, are quick to label it as persecution. I'm not quite sure that that is the case. Um, a lot of it is common to just being a citizen in yeah. this country. Yeah. A lot of it simply just inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to use that, that term rather carefully um, and not just resort to it, um, you know, in a knee-jerk fashion. So I'm not sure if that answers your question or no, not. No, it does. I, I'm following what you're saying. Um, I was just, one of my previous interviews recently, uh, he was talking about the book of Daniel, and I thought, uh, which I have been thinking, that that may become the book of choice for the church in the next uh, 10 right. years or so. And he said, well, speaking of that, I just wrote a book on Daniel <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the same reasons. Uh, so right. he has the, the model for what's he, what he thinks the church is going to need 
for uh, the, for the time we move into this new era. But that's uh, that's a very long story there too. Yeah, I guess I would I would return to the idea that uh, believers are not only called uh, to be theologians, but but they are equipped to be theologians, and that every one of us has not only the responsibility but the privilege of studying God's word in a way that brings honor to him. And the thing that, you know, this ties in, I guess, with what's going on in our culture, the way for believers to best equip themselves to deal with what's coming, and we don't know what's coming, the best way to do that is to be deeply familiar with God's word and with scripture. That is the equipment that we need to hold fast to the truth, to the Savior, and to be ready for whatever may come our way. It's been a real pleasure talking with Matt Ferris today. We hope you'll check out his website, gentlemantheologian.com. And please watch for more of our upcoming guests on The Walk, people from all walks of life who are on the front lines of Christian ministry. Thanks for listening today. Again, this is John Snyder. Thank you.